And a high fly ball into deep left center. Havana, Cuba has arrived. And we have a 5-5 tie. And the fly ball, the deep right, blanks to the track. It is gone. He has hit another one. Que viva Cuba. Viva Puig. And it's 8-6. Dodgers, can you believe it? Good morning and welcome to episode 428 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindberg. Sam Miller is on vacation, so I'm joined today by Jason Wojciechowski, who has filled in for Sam before. Hello, Jason. I thought I was going to be Sam. <laughs> yes, you I were. thought we agreed on that. <laughs> you can role play if you'd like. <laughs> Um, and we are also joined by a distinguished guest today, Jesse Katz, who is a longtime journalist reporter, uh, spent many years at the Los Angeles Times and is a contributing writer at Los Angeles Magazine, where he wrote a really in-depth feature uh, for the, the May issue that you can read online now about Yasiel Puig and Puig's escape from Cuba or his journey from Cuba to the to the United States via Mexico and and a lot of the the shady aspects of that journey and a little bit about Puig himself. So it's a really interesting story. It's it's a bit more in-depth than your typical hot take on Puig being <laughs> late for a game uh, and not being in the lineup. So uh, thanks for joining us, Jesse. Hey, it's a great pleasure, Ben and Jason. Uh, so for people who don't know, can you give a little bit of background on how exactly a, a player gets from Cuba to the United States and, and the, the arcane rules and laws and lack of laws governing that process? Sure. It's, uh, you know, one of the problems is that there is no legitimate way. There is no uh, humanitarian boat lift uh, taking players like Yasiel Puig and delivering them to the major leagues. Uh, it really requires uh, a series of kind of illicit steps. First, you have to escape from Cuba. And, uh, you know, I am hardly a Cuba basher, but it's kind of extraordinary that, you know, anytime you have a people that are prohibited from crossing their own borders, um, it's, it's, it's troubling. And Yasiel had to, had to make multiple attempts to get out of Cuba. I was able to document five of them. There may be more, uh, but uh, he finally succeeded. Um, and, you know, you don't just do it on your own. You don't just hop in a rowboat and head, head for Florida. You're putting your, your life on the line and, uh, you know, you're hoping that there's millions of dollars waiting for you at the end of that journey. You need smugglers. You need smugglers to get yourself off the island of Cuba. And ultimately what those smugglers do is they don't take you to the United States where, um, a Cuban would be welcomed quite readily as a, as a political asylee, uh, but you would also be uh, considered an amateur uh, in baseball terms and would be thrown into the draft and, and find yourself at the mercy of whatever team happened to draft you. And so what Cuban players need to do is declare themselves free agents before they come to America. And the problem is you can't be a free agent in Cuba. As a Cuban playing for a Cuban league, not only does the Cuban government prohibit it, but the U.S. government does. You can't you can't pay money uh, to a Cuban citizen um, legitimately. So Yasiel did what many other Cuban ball players have done 
to to arrive at the at, at the big leagues, and that is go to a third country. Sometimes, you know, it's the Dominican Republic or Haiti. In his case, it was Mexico. So he had these smugglers um, deliver him uh, to Isla Mujeres uh, off the coast of Cancun, and that's where the story starts to get, uh, you know, very, very dark and menacing. Right. And you, you point out in the piece that maybe it's sort of surprising that more Cuban players don't try to make this trip given what's at stake or given what they stand to make. And you, you mentioned that Puig was making $17 a month playing in Cuba, and he's, of course, making quite a bit more than that now. So the incentive is certainly there, but there seems to be no reliable method. There's no no method that's not fraught with with danger, uh, and and Puig certainly faced some of that in his own trip. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about this story and and many other stories I've done before this is, you know, you you th- we think of these big forces in the world, uh, uh, political forces, ideological forces, economic, criminal, whatever it may be, but they're kind of abstractions. And when they collide, you know, they don't collide in abstract ways. They they really um, affect regular folks down at the street level. And it's hard hard to remember that a little less than two years ago, Yasiel Puig was still just a regular guy, you know, a more or less unknown Cuban prospect uh, just trying to get off the island. And uh, But when you have that collision, um, you know, it, 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 it puts people in, in, in kind of impossible situations. So Yasiel, like other Cuban ballplayers who have made this journey, you know, was forced to take some risks and and make some compromises and rub shoulders with some really unsavory characters in order to make this journey. And, you know, you can sort of, you know, um, look askance at that. And at the same time, it's completely understandable. I think if you or I or any of us had even a fraction of the talent that somebody like Yasiel Puig has, and we were making the alternative was $17 a month, we'd, we'd probably be getting on that boat too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of listeners will, will recall the, the story from last year in New York Mag by, by Steve Fishman about A-Rod and sort of all the unsavory characters that were involved in his life. And, and that story now seems pretty tame compared to the people Puig was involved with. And so, so you have to essentially find a backer it seems to to pay off the smugglers to take you on this trip and the one who who was backing Puig uh did not come through once once Puig arrived in Mexico and so that put him in a a very dangerous situation it seems like yeah well a few things about the the backer who ultimately became backers but the but the guy who sent the message to Yasiel was uh, was a dude in Miami named Raul Pacheco. And he, you know, is at best described as a, a small-time crook. He was on probation at the time for attempted burglary and possession of a fake Florida ID. And it's sort of, uh, and he was an air conditioning repairman, and he had like a recycling business, a metal business, and uh, sort of Hard to think that somebody like that would be able to deliver the most attractive offer to Yasiel to get <laughs> off the island. Right. But, um, uh, but apparently it was, or maybe other offers had fallen through and he was desperate. And uh, Raul Pacheco's offer was he would put up $250,000 to pay the smugglers. 
that would get uh, Yasiel off the island. And in return, once Yasiel was in Mexico and was a free agent and could audition for, for pro scouts and sign a contract, that he would then owe uh, Raul Pacheco 20% of all future earnings. And, you know, from our perspective, that just sounds kind of insane and usurious and uh, uh, you would never never recommend that to a, a friend or a client but uh, you know if you're a kid in Cuba and, and, and again looking at the alternatives uh, it probably sounded pretty good mm-hmm. and so when uh, Pacheco did not pay up essentially the you know Puig was more or less held hostage by these smugglers and and was threatened um, what I couldn't tell was you know at that point do you think that Puig was in serious danger, given that you know he's he's essentially a lottery ticket for whoever is is holding him at that point? The smugglers eventually decided to auction him off, so it, it seems like it you know they really would have been uh, hurting themselves by hurting him. Yeah, well, uh, Pacheco seemingly did not have the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that he had pledged. Or there's there's some there's some contradictory information in the record. It, it it may be that he put up some of it or all of it, and then the smugglers decided, oh well, Puig's worth this much more, and they ex- tried to extort more money out of Pacheco. Uh, but the more likely thing, from what I've been able to glean, is that. He probably didn't have $250,000. So for whatever reason, the smugglers weren't getting the money that they thought they were entitled to. And this went on for a number of days. And eventually those days turned into weeks. And uh, at 20 some odd days, you know, the the, the smugglers were, um, you know, this was not a game. And they they were making what seemed to be real threats and uh, talk of violence and were mentioning that, you know, at any moment they could take a machete out and, and lop off an arm or a, or a hand or a finger. And, you know, Yasiel would never play baseball again for anyone. And like, you know, I don't know, was that likely to happen? Uh, I, I interviewed a, a guy who was on the boat with Yasiel, who was in that motel room with Yasiel and I asked him just that did you did you really think these threats were real and uh, you know his answer to me was who the hell knows uh, I mean you can't really say but we we had to assume they were real um, they could have been real and I guess that's what I have in the back of my mind I, I don't think there were guys walking around swinging machetes at any point but um, you know you can imagine some strung out smuggler, uh, you know, on the Yucatan who has had one shot too many of, of tequila and snorted a line or two too many of the wrong thing. And, and all of a sudden he loses his cool and, and gets frustrated and, you know, doesn't give a damn about Yasiel or, or baseball. So I'm, I'm sort of curious about, um, I don't know, you, <laughs> you know, what, what, um, like why why Yasiel Puig? You know, obviously everybody. You know, there, there's been a million stories, um, and you know, still there was a lot of mystery. Of course, um, you know, you answered questions that had not been answered before. Um, but was there something more than just um, you know this is this is a mystery that that somebody should solve or you know was there anything in particular about Puig that was you know really made you want to to go after this or uh, what was the what was your motivation Jesse I guess is what I'm trying to ask here 
that's a very pointed question. <laughs> um, you know, I, first of all, I, I should say I approach a story like this kind of as a Dodger fan. You know, I, 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 I have 16 years in a row that I've gone to opening day here at Dodger Stadium. And, you know, it's almost like my national day of observance or something. And, and uh, you know, my, my mom came to America on a boat from, from war-torn Europe during World War II and landed in New York and was a Dodger fan as a little girl and um, actually felt uh, like she was becoming American by listening to the Brooklyn Dodgers on the radio. So maybe there's some of that in my, in my DNA where I was just sort of drawn to this team and what it means and what it represents. Um, and, you know, was was thrilled when Yasiel showed up in the middle of last season. I mean, the Dodgers were this incredible disappointment, um, you know, a $200 million plus payroll, and they were in last place, and they just seemed like listless and passionless and underachieving and, you know, just looked like this, you know, horrible waste of, of, of talent and money. And all of a sudden, this, you know, this kid comes up from, at that point, I think, a double A Chattanooga and just takes the team by storm and takes the city by storm and in some ways, you know, took all of all of Major League Baseball by storm. And it was just it was thrilling, you know. I mean he's he plays in this kind of fearless, joyful, exuberant level that's also kind of confounding and head scratching. And I don't know, I just think that we're at least speaking, uh, I, I know not everybody in every city in America shares this perspective, but I think as, as somebody who lives in L.A., I mean, I'm incredibly lucky that I have somebody like Yasiel Puig to, to cheer for and, and, you know, groan about, too. So um, I was fascinated by him, and, and I felt, you know, I guess, you know, your instinct tells you, well, it didn't, it didn't require that much instinct, but it was clear that we, we didn't know the whole story about him. It was clear that that there was something enigmatic about him, something, things that he wasn't revealing. And, of course, there were some rumors and hints. If you go back and read the old stories and a few blog posts, I mean, there really were references to um, smugglers and kidnappings. But, I don't know, like nobody, nobody really went there. Nobody, nobody wanted I don't know, maybe somebody wanted to know, but nobody maybe wanted to upset the Dodgers or upset Puig or kind of lose their their access to that community in, in the locker room or on the playing field. And maybe as a as a non sports reporter, I I felt that I would have a little bit more latitude to follow the story wherever it went. The the other sort of reporting question that I'm kind of interested in and it's I don't know. It's the salacious question. Like the the these sort of underworld kind of stories are not um, are not uh, new to you. Um, you know, it, it's you you've certainly done more than your share of uh, reporting from those kinds of worlds. Did did you? Um, I mean, were there moments in this where you were in places where you were nervous? Were there people that kind of? Um, maybe you weren't entirely comfortable with anything like that during during this story i mean it's you know you talked about the, the the sort of shadiness of the characters and you've got these smugglers around and um you know i don't know how much contact you sort of had to have um 
directly with that world um, in reporting this, but was that part of the experience here? Well, you know, I, di- I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't have that much contact directly with the with people in the smuggling world, but um, probably the, the moments that felt diciest to me were uh, when I was in Cuba. Uh, I, it's funny, like, I, I went to Cuba once before about a dozen years ago as, uh, as a tourist. So at that point, uh, Cuba was happy to have me, but uh, I was not in compliance with uh, U.S. laws at that particular time. On this trip, it was the reverse. I was uh, completely honoring U.S. laws because as a journalist, I have I qualify for a general license, which allows me to go to Cuba to report a story. But the Cuban authorities aren't too thrilled about having journalists just parachute in. So I went in as a, as a tourist. I didn't have a press visa. So I, I was kind of having to be discreet about who I was and what I was doing there. And that was okay a lot of the times because, you know, I just wanted to soak it up. I just I did want to be a tourist and, and just get the sights and sounds and smells and try to absorb where Yasiel grew up and where he came from. But there were moments such as when, um, you know, I, I made a incursion into the, the little village that Yasiel is from, a, a little, I mean, it's a town of like 3,000 people, a factory town where there's a sugarcane factory and that's, that's the entire town. And um, there's a, a baseball field, this kind of uh, scorched earth, uh, tattered, broken down bases made out of uh, uh, swaths of old flower bags and I mean it was right out of some you know movie about uh, the the uh, dire conditions of kids playing baseball in the Caribbean and uh, and I knocked on the door of his house I went to the place that Yasiel lived and um, I said the truth. I said that I was from Los Angeles and I was a huge baseball fan and um, I love the Dodgers and we all love Yasiel Puig in Los Angeles and I wanted to see where he was from. And, um, you know, it wasn't the entire truth, but it was was and, you know, I didn't want to, uh, you know, there was somebody living in the house. I don't want to embarrass that person. I didn't quote that person. I, but I just wanted to see. I wanted to see where he lived. I wanted to know where he came from. Uh, but it did occur to me that if that person was suspicious or if that person had decided to call Yasiel at that moment, you know, the they could have called the, the police or the every, you know, every block in Cuba has a a branch of the CDR, the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution, which are kind of the neighborhood's informants, really. And, uh, you know, I could have easily been escorted off that island if anybody grew too suspicious. So this kind of, you know, I will say posing as a Dodger fan, which was which was an authentic identity, um, but feeling like, you know, if anyone pressed me too much, I could be in real trouble. I was very conscious of the of the clock ticking on me and needing to see some things, absorb them, and then get the hell out. I imagine that that some of the writers who have been 
frustrated by by Puig uh, and his his behavior, I suppose off the field thus far in his career would maybe feel vindicated or gratified by your description of uh, Puig earlier in his career. I mean, at Puig at, at eighteen was certainly no more mature than than Puig at twenty three. Uh, and it it sounds like you know you you described uh, you talked to to teammates or player people who played with him or people who covered him and and it sounds like the you know the the issues that he's had with the Dodgers now were something that that he had really from the start but that maybe at least initially uh, those those failings were sort of you know winked at a little more than they have been here or at least accepted more you know there has there wasn't so much of a, a righteous you know, this is not how the game is played response to, to Puig early on. I have, everywhere I went in Cuba uh, and asked, you know, mentioned Yasiel's name, the, the word you would hear over and over again was loco. He'd be, you know, medio loco, un poco loco, cabeza loca, you know, whatever it was, it was, he was just always, he was half crazy, a little bit crazy. And, 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 and people said it kind of with, a little bit of the shake of the head, but also kind of admiringly at the same time, like they kind of, um, there was an appreciation for this kind of carefree enthusiasm, slightly reckless quality. And so, you know, maybe that was tolerated in a way, although, you know, Puig had a lot of trouble with his coaches there and, you know, his ability to kind of stay, off the bench or stay out of the doghouse. And, and in some ways that hasn't changed so much either. But, you know, he had a, a rookie year when he was 18 playing for the Cienfuegos Elefantes. And he did okay. He batted like 270-something. And, you know, it was fair enough. He was he was young, but it was not stellar. And, you know, this is, this is a team, by the way, that uh, Jose Abreu was on. And, you know, one of the really legitimate feared sluggers of the Cuban League. So there were already stars, big stars. And then his second year, he comes back, and the reports were that Puig had been injured, and so he didn't really play. But, you know, I found a lot of evidence suggesting that he had he had pissed off his coaches and was, you know, missing in action late for practice or didn't show up for training sessions or whatever. And you know, I found a quote from him on a Cuban blog where he said, you know, he missed the season for for behaving good in practice. So mm-hmm. he was, I think, being a little bit <laughs> spy and facetious. Uh, and then he comes back his third year and has his best year ever in Cuba. And, and that, you know, earns him the, the ability to travel to international tournaments and whatnot. And uh, he comes back from that and he's suspended again. And he's kind of on the team, then off the team. And, uh, and, and it's clear that at that point, his defection attempts have begun. But you look back at it, and, you know, he, he really didn't hardly play in Cuba at all. You know, he, he had one good season. or He played two out of the four seasons that he was uh, with, with Cienfuegos. So the, he was really in so many ways, untested and, you know, did not have those years of experience that maybe uh, somebody coming through our high school and college system here would have had. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the the very difficult line that a, a aspiring defector has to walk in, in Cuba where, you know, you, you write that Puig wanted to appear as if he were a loyal and trustworthy Cuban citizen. 
even as he plotted his own escape. And so uh, as part of this effort, um, you know, some of these players or people who are thinking about defecting have to be willing to to turn on the people who maybe are, are helping them do this to protect themselves. Um, and so it's sort of tough to to figure out how to regard Puig's role in this. Uh, you know, is it is it snitching? Is it just is it self-preservation? Uh, you say that a more charitable view of Puig conveys the pressure he he lived under. Um, you know, if you can go to jail because this offer is not legitimate and someone will turn you in, then of course you have to be willing to turn them in if it's if it's them or you. So how do you how do you think about his his actions in this situation? Well, you're you're absolutely right. It, it is hard to know what to think of it and what to make of it. Um, I feel like, you know, Cuba Cuba is a, a, a beautiful country with lovely people, and they're they're placed in this you know enormously difficult situation. So, uh, you got to start from that premise that you're in a country where suggesting to somebody else, hey, it would be great if you left the country, uh, that's a crime. And, uh, you know, that's just sort of hard thing to wrap your brain around if you're from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, yeah, there's, there's constant pressure on these guys to leave. They're being solicited all the time uh, from, you know, messengers and couriers and bagmen and touts, and they all you know, are trying to say, hey, let's get out, get out of the country, I'll help you, I'll, we'll do it. And at the same time, you have these secret police and paying informants and all sorts of eyes on you monitoring your every move. And, you know, the allegations in this court case that is still pending in Miami are that Puig turned people in, you know, that there's a dude in a Cuban prison who got seven years in prison because Puig and his mother testified against him, said that this guy you know, tried to offer Puig a, a trip out of the country. And uh, Puig did testify, and that's, you know, that's kind of troubling. And the lawsuit paints him as an opportunist, paints him as a, as a, as a snitch and a backstabber. Um, and it, you know, it's easy to say that that's less than honorable behavior. At the same time, I'm not sure how much choice Puig really had. Um, he was he was being told you have to testify, and um, uh, you know it's. Uh, I tried to put myself in his shoes. You know, on on one hand, you could come away thinking like this guy is kind of ruthless and just in it for himself, and at the same time, I'm thinking, what if he really just wants to get out and he doesn't know how to get out and he doesn't know who to trust and. He's being bombarded with offers, and and you gotta, you know, you're gonna put your life in somebody's hands, and you gotta count on them to deliver you to your destination. And you know, who do you trust, and and when, and where do you talk about it, and and how how do you know it's gonna turn out okay without it kind of blowing up in your face, and you end up in jail yourself. And um, so I, you know, it's it's I don't know that he handled it great. But I also don't think that he was put in a very ideal situation. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the lawsuit, actually, because that's kind of where we wanted to uh, go a little bit, particularly this this boxer whose whose name I'm going to ask you to pronounce because we don't have any idea how to say that his last name. Yeah. Well, uh, ju- Junior, Junior, but we could call him J- Junior, uh, Despainier. 
Just, um, so so it's 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 it sounds it sounds vaguely French, um, I guess. Um, uh, so he he's kind of an interesting character in this story. I mean, Puig is not the only person with a lot of mixed motives and a, a lot of um, mystery in his background and a lot of uh, I don't know. I mean, what what did you? I mean, you went to you went to his house. Um, <laughs> what did you what did you what did you make of this guy? Yeah, well, Junior is is a you know he is a key figure in this whole story. He was uh, a boxer on the Cuban national team, and he was suspended from the boxing team because he was considered a flight risk, and so he was kind of out of sorts and didn't have a future in Cuba anymore. And he happened to know our air conditioning uh, recycler uh, probationer uh, in Miami, Raúl Pacheco. And uh, so, so Raul Pacheco called Junior. That's how the message got passed to Yasiel and how the deal got put together, um, from my understanding. And, uh, and so Junior got a free ride on the boat with Yasiel, uh, but also endured a lot of what, uh, you know, endured not only the captivity in, in Mexico, but after it all ended and they were all in the United States and the smugglers went looking, looking to, to recoup their money, they felt they had gotten stiff. It was Junior that they tracked down and Junior that they threatened and they called his mom and threatened her. And so he kind of endured the, the crappy end of this, you know, the, the messy aftermath. And I'm not sure that Junior felt that Yasiel really handled things as best as he could or took care of business or looked looked out for junior. And so uh, junior has become a witness in this lawsuit and submitted an affidavit back in December that kind of lays out almost every single step of the story from the various defection attempts in Cuba to the month of captivity in Mexico, to all the financial arrangements and the names of the smugglers and the names of the financiers in Miami. And um, he kind of lays it all out there. And what's his motive? You know, he, he's, he's not a plaintiff. He's a witness. So he doesn't really have anything invested in the outcome of the lawsuit. But, you know, he's clearly trying to undermine Yasiel in some ways and uh, lend credibility to this guy who ended up in prison. And, um, you know, my sense is that, you know, he, if you want to give him the, the most charitable interpretation, you know, he feels that, that people, people got ground up, you know, he's tired of this. He's tired of seeing his people um, sort of become collateral damage for this, for these kind of journeys. And he's, He's speaking up. I'm sure Yasiel and and his his people view uh, Junior as as you know a hanger on who's trying to milk him for money. Does does what uh, was going on in the background make Puig's rookie season performance any more impressive to you? And that even even though he wasn't necessarily being contacted directly or, or bearing the brunt of this, he was still a target in some sense. Or you know the smugglers wanted money from him since, you know, after he kind of cashed in on his talent and one of them turned up dead under mysterious circumstances. And there's all this, uh, you know, threats flying around uh, and, you know, it kind of contextualizing his his incredible spring last year and then his 
his breakout performance in the majors. I mean, that has to be more of a a distraction or a concern than than most players have to have to deal with. Yeah, knowing that you owe twenty percent of your salary <laughs> right. to mafioso <laughs> dudes in Miami, and meanwhile have some smugglers who are in cahoots with the uh, Zeta uh, drug cartel. Uh, thinking that you stiff them, um, those are some distractions. But you know, the best athletes seem to be able to compartmentalize that and leave the the chatter and and uh, the distractions aside. And I don't know, uh, you know, he loves to play baseball. That much is clear. And uh, I suspect that when he's on the baseball field, all that stuff ends. And um, and you know, maybe that's his one safe place. Before we wrap up, I'm just curious, you know, having having reported and, and written this piece, how it has affected your perception of Puig. You know, a lot of the response to your story, I think, has been, we need to give this guy a break. Look what he has gone through. You know, anyone having having faced death and faced threats and had, having gone to extreme lengths to get themselves here, maybe, you know, we should cut him some slack for, for being late to, to a game now and then. Um, is that... You know, is that a, a fair response to this? Do you think? Do Do you think that? Uh, you know, has your reporting, in a sense, confirmed that that this has kind of always been the way Puig was, even even before uh, he made that journey? And so, uh, you know, does this, I guess, make Puig a, a more sympathetic character to you, or less? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I have been heartened by the fact that the the response generally seems to be um, both very generous towards the story. People people are quite taken by it, mm-hmm. which makes me happy. But they 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 also interpret it in a way that is generous towards Yasiel. You're right. It's it's it's. I I kind of thought that because the details are so uh, dark at times and the the implications of the story are so unsettling. That maybe the 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 haters out there would use it to condemn Yasiel in some ways, or I don't know, or or they would hate the story as a result uh, if they were defenders of Yasiel, and uh, and it just doesn't seem to have panned out that way. People are are intrigued by what he had to go through and uh, respond to it in some kind of positive way. And and look, I mean, Los Angeles is you know we're a city of of immigrants were kind of a city of Yasiel Puig's. You know, there is there are not too many parts of, of, of Los Angeles where you go and, you know, there isn't somebody that's had some version of that journey. You know, maybe it was on land and not on water, and maybe there wasn't a $42 million contract waiting for them upon their arrival. But, um, man, you know, millions of people have, have risked their lives to uh, get across the border and get out of their homeland to be part of what LA is. So I feel like that's kind of, you know, maybe it's not articulated, but I feel like that's kind of permeating the discussion in some ways. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for, for bringing this story to light and, and also for discussing it with us. Uh, people should definitely check it out either in the, the May issue of LA magazine or right now online, we will link to it in the podcast post at baseball prospectus and also in the Facebook group. Uh, and you can go to buyjessicats.com to, to read more about Jesse and, and dig up some of his other work. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Jesse. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
and we will be back tomorrow. Please send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will get to those. And please support our sponsor, the baseballreference.com play index. Go to baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you sign up for the play index to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back tomorrow.